You're listening to the Living a Life Unleashed podcast. Welcome to the Living a Life Unleashed podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Bishop. Hey, thanks for tuning in. And if you're new to this podcast, welcome. I'm glad that you are hanging out with us. Each week, I invite a guest onto the show to talk about a topic that is meant to spark ideas and give us ways to grow, get unstuck, gain new insights, and compel us to action as we journey together to play full out and live fully into who we were created to be and make our best contribution to others along the way. A reminder to please share this podcast with others, and when you listen, leave comments and reviews. When you review the podcast, it gains more visibility to others. Well, my guest on today's show is Chris Hewerts, and he is the author of the book, The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. And if this is the first time you've even heard of the Enneagram, here's a little teaser. Chris has described the Enneagram as a character structure system that illustrates the nine ways we lie to ourselves about who we think we are, nine ways we learn to come clean about the illusions we live in, and nine ways we find our way back to God. And Chris is going to help us unpack that and share his insights and wisdom on the Enneagram and how it helps us to grow spiritually. Well, Chris, it's so good to have you on the other line. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Great to great to have a conversation with you. I read your first book, Unexpected Gifts, that came out in 2013, and I just loved that book and just finished reading the newest work that we're going to talk about today, The Sacred Enneagram. So I am just super excited to share that with the listeners today. How did you first learn about the Enneagram and gain interest in it? So I um, learned the Enneagram just about 20 years ago from a a friend, and we were visiting him in in the slums of Phnom Penh in Cambodia, where he uh, where he still lives and and works. We um, had lunch one afternoon. We were up on this rooftop of this super hip little sort of local local spot, and uh, he asked me, "Man, actually, mate, have you ever (laughs) the Enneagram?" And I had it, and as he began to explain it to me, I was just like, oh, boy. I mean, it just felt completely exposed. Um, and I wanted to push back on it, so I resisted it, and I, I sort of fought back, which, of course, is is obvious <laughs> that my type was showing even then. But, man, I, uh, I sort of say, once the Instagram finds you, and, and when it finds you, it's usually right on time. It, it, it won't let you go. And that was that was the truth, this thing just like a splinter in my brain got stuck and I've, you know, 20 years later, I've not been able to, to put it down. Well, clearly, cause you've written a book on it and you're continuing to educate people. So I gave a little bit of a teaser in the opening about the Enneagram, but just for people who are, this is the first time they're even hearing the word. How would you, how would you describe what the Enneagram is and why, why it's important? Sure. So, so what the Enneagram has become um, in, in 2018 is, is really been reduced down to a, a personality profile system. And, and sadly, that's actually mm-hmm. um, hardly, hardly what it is. In fact, that's one of the, the, the newest sort of iterations of what this ancient teaching has to offer. My sense, though, as people look at it through the lens of personality or human character structure is that the Enneagram shows us our ego set of coping addictions that we've wrapped up around a childhood wound so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. Hmm. And, and what that 
I mean, and that's a mouthful, but what that essentially means is we all have allowed fragments of the whole of who we are to lay or fragments of who we are to lay claim to the whole of who we think we become. And, um, and, and so what the Enneagram can offer us is, is sort of an unraveling out of the projection of our ego mythology and, and really a return to our true self. So really a return to our essence, really a, a return to getting back in touch with the reason we're here, our, our created purpose for, for being. Yeah, it seems, I don't know. Do you, do you think that the Enneagram is complicated or does it just look complicated to somebody who's kind of learning it? for the first or second time it just it's just it's so intricate maybe complicated isn't the right word it seems really intricate um so uh, that's a great question i I think it's a simple teaching right i mean essentially as we see it parlayed into the enneagram of personality which is one of the the specific uses of it um the enneagram of personality basically says yes there are nine um human character structure archetypes and uh and if you can sort of understand that the energy or the essence of each of these nine it's pretty simple it, it makes a lot of sense and it's really straightforward now it is very deep though and the deeper you get of course just like anything the more nuanced uh, the more intricate maybe that is a great word like the the more uh, I actually think the more beautiful it becomes, mm. but it, it does require a little bit of fluency. It does require that somebody sort of helps uh, demystify this and then translate some of the insider lingo. And um, so my book, I tried to do that. I tried to, to, to write this book for folks who've never heard of this, as well as folks who've been working with this for 20 or 30 years. Right, right. What are the, you, you mentioned or referenced the nine personality types. What, what are the nine personality types of the Enneagram? So I, I, um, when I learned this from my friend Craig in New Zealand, um, and, and, and came back to the States and, and, and started to, to sort of dig into this and, and study this a little bit. One of my first teachers, um, who's still a, a dear friend and, um, one of our board members here at Gravity is a Franciscan friar down in Albuquerque, Albuquerque, New, New Mexico. And his name's Father Richard Roar. And when Father Richard taught this to me, he taught this to me really through fundamental needs, Right. And so if you, you want to run around the circle, the Enneagram, these nine types, type one fundamentally has the need to be perfect, right? These are very principled people who um, have in, incredibly developed inner critics, which hold them to unrealistic standards of, of goodness. And, and that creates a little bit of ache in them because as much as they want to, to curate and create a, a beautiful and harmonious, perfect world, they are somehow afraid that they are tragically flawed and that they're the first source of how the world's broken. Mm-hmm. Um, type two is this, this person who has this fundamental need to be needed, right? Incredibly giving and generous of themselves, incredibly heart forward, incredibly nurturing, but, but somehow a, a little afraid that they're only loved um, for what they give, not who they fundamentally and truly are. And so they continue to, to, to self-abnegate, giving themselves away at their own expense as, as, as what they perceive their social gift and social good to be. Hmm. Type three is this need to succeed. And these people are incredibly ambitious, um, quietly competitive, um, emotionally intelligent, though they're often disconnected from their own hearts because they perceive what needs to be accomplished or, or achieved or attained in their relationships and in, in, in the workplaces. And they very quietly sort of orchestrate behind the scenes um, scenarios for success. And, and so they're incredibly, um, they're incredibly 
accomplished people, but, but that also comes from this ache in their heart where they're afraid that they may not know what true love feels like apart from being rewarded, affirmed, um, receiving admiration or attention. And so this is why they, they sometimes feel compelled to accomplish as much as they do. Hmm. Type four is the need to be unique. This person feels completely disconnected from their, their childhood holding environments as if maybe they were adopted and their, their caregivers never told them that. And, and they continue to sometimes feel like they don't belong but what they, they, they have this, this incredible ability to do is see goodness, beauty, significance in everything around them except for themselves. And so they thirst to reconnect with their identity, um, fearing that they, they've lost it. Type 5 is, is the need to understand, and, and these people um, will get to the bottom of everything. Incredible uh, analysts, um, incredible theorists. Um, they, 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 they love learning and, and, and even though they love learning, they, they actually often don't like teachers because teachers slow down their learning process. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, um, really reserved. And this is one of the ways that they show us love. They, they withdraw so that they can find solutions as, as a way of offering what they perceive their best is back to, to their community. Type six is, is this need to be secure and, and type six are, are just, they're, they're, they're threat forecasters. They, they look for every worst case scenario and, and they do this as a way of trying to create stability and security, safety for, for those that they love. Um, they, they sadly second guess themselves frequently though. And, and this is part of one of their defense strategies because if they can second guess themselves and that's one more contingency planning, if I am a little off, if I am a little wrong here, I'd love to know it before I, 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 I suffer the consequences of it. Hmm. But when they are centered and rooted, they are the strongest and, and most faithful and resilient of, of any person you will know, incredibly committed and loyal and, and, and really responsible. Type seven is the need to avoid pain. And so they're playful and ridiculous and charming and funny and so winsome. But it's, it's really because they're running from, from not having or wanting to look in at, at what causes their own suffering. And, and so what's difficult for, for folks who are dominant type seven is to, to be present because when they are enjoying the moment, they realize because they're so smart, actually, mm-hmm. they're in their head, even though we think they're, they're hard type people. They know that whatever they're they're enjoying in the moment will actually have its end, and so they're already thinking about what they are going to do, where they are going to go to replace the possible suffering of something amazing that they're experiencing in the present, sort of being concluded. Type eight; these are the the folks who have this fundamental need to be against. They're they're contrarians. Uh, they're they're combative. They hate bullies, but they're the biggest bully. They're they're, they're ridiculous in terms of their intensity and, and their drive. They, they, they just have this incredible presence and, and they initiate. Um, but they're pushing on folks. This, this combative nature of the A isn't because they, they, they simply want to fight. It's because they're trying to build trust, because they're, they're, they're trying to um, waylay this, this, this fear inside of not being in control of any scenario. And so they try to exert control through presence. And then finally, type nine is the need to avoid. And, and these people really try to avoid conflict at all costs. They, they want to harmonize their external environment by through mediation, through arbitration, through, 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 through functioning as, as, as a real clear headed referee. But this is a proxy battle that, that folks dominant type nine play because what is sort of behind the curtain there is 
an inner life that that may actually be entirely wrecked and and and, and something that they're actually ignoring and avoiding and, and 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 so they sometimes subconsciously convince themselves that if I can fix everything outside here then whatever's going on whatever's unmet whatever's unreconciled on inside will will be fine because harmony will be the medicine for for what may be broken within Wow. So that's a, a quick sort of run around the circle. Yeah, that was that was brilliant. A brilliant recap. What, where does our type come from, and how how is our type formed? Right. So this is um one of the great uh, debates within the sort of enneagram community. Okay. Um, you know, Father Richard has has taught and, and and has told me that he thinks it's one third nature, one third nurture, and one third just learning to play a role in, in our childhood environments. Um, I, I know other folks who, who fundamentally believe that type is formed by childhood wounds. Um, my sense is that, that you're born with a type that you, you sort of can't help it and that your type, um, is, is really the, 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 the gift of your presence that, that for whatever divine reason you sort of landed somewhere on that circle, wherever your soul was sort of dropped the point closest to that location on the circle is your dominant type. And you, 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 I, 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 I probably believe that, that you won't ever be able to change your type either. Um, my sense though, is that the, the so-called childhood wounds of the Enneagram, um, are really the confirmation bias of your type, that they don't shape your type, but that they sort of confirm to you that, yes, this is my type. This is, um, this is the essence that I bring forward, and my childhood wound shows me how I was disconnected from that essence. Huh? Can you give like a just an example of that? What, how... mm-hmm. So I'm dominant in in Type A, right? The okay. Type A is um, by the Riso Hudson folks. One of my teachers, um, Russ Hudson, co-wrote a, several books. Um, one of them, The Wisdom of the Enneagram. But at the Enneagram Institute. Um, they would call type eight, the challenger, right? This is where father Richard would say, this is the person who has the need to be against, um, folks who are, who are dominant in type eight, their, their, their typical childhood wound is that they had to, to, to grow up a, a little too fast. That part of their childhood was sacrificed for, for something that was, um, difficult or, or trying in that early holding environment. Folks who are also dominant in type eight have this in, in terms of an object relations theory overlay, they, they have this conflicted relationship with their nurturing caregiver. And so I, I can attest to that, right? Mm. My mother, I think is, is probably, um, uh, I probably shouldn't out my mother's type, but let me say this. <laughs> My mother's incredibly nurturing and incredibly heart forward. And I was the firstborn. She was 19. And you can imagine, she just probably smothered me with Mm -hmm. all of love. But I I believe, and I believe having been born type A, that if part of my, my fundamental need is the need to be in control, then when this heart forward nurturing caregiver came at me, it felt like I was being controlled. And so I resisted it and I pushed against it. Now, she didn't do anything wrong. She didn't wound me. In fact, she loved me. She created an incredible environment and childhood for me. But I think because of the energy of our type, we create these tensions and, 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 and like I said, in, in how we experience our loss of contact with the essence. And then we look back and re narrate those as wounds. And so now I, of course, look at myself as an adult and I look at how difficult it is for me to 
self-nurture or to receive nurture or to validate my need for nurture. And, and this is just a sort of muscle memory of me coping with me having that sense of loss of, of contact with essence. Wow. So, you know, our parents, I, I really would say this, like if you, you get into the Enneagram and you start to poke around with your type and you see this stuff around the childhood wounds, I just say, look, let your parent or parents off the hook. They probably did their best. They, they, they probably actually didn't wound you. You just needed something to sort of like a hook to hang this existential ache that all of us have at a certain, a certain point in our childhood that we won't remember. That sort of happens probably between the ages of two and five when we start to learn how to pretend, how to tell lies, how to mimic our environment. And, and we do this to ourselves as one of our earliest sort of coping strategies or defense mechanisms of, of losing touch with innocence. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and, I, and, and almost the interpretation of the events that happened around us. I like that, the idea of, of letting our parents off the hook and not letting that be a, a blame thing of like, I turned out this way because of you. But it's our interpretation often of our circumstances and events that kind of that add to our perception, right? Right. And, and, and I don't have children of my own, but I'll tell you what, like my little puppy Basil shows me all of my <laughs> own inconsistencies. He, he shows me all of the ways that, you know, I, 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 I react to what I perceive his needs, his energy um, may be. And so sometimes I'm like, he can be off the leash in the park. And sometimes he has to be on the leash in the park. And sometimes I, I, I just randomly give him a a treat when he's not done anything. And other times I only give him a treat when he's been obedient. And, you know, as I even watch how I relate to my dog, I'm like, wow, I have given my dog (laughs) the perfect material for all of the nine traditional Enneagram childhood wounds. (laughs) And this is where I also think like we've all experienced all nine of these childhood. It's just, there's one that we're more sensitive to. There's Mm. one that we react more, more strongly against. And, And I think that's actually, in our childhood, the first evidence of type confirmation. And so, you know, like I said, it's not what's been done to us. It's, it's how we, how we just become more human. And, and I would say that like one of the great gifts of of being truthful with your Enneagram number is, is, is you do begin to lay down blame. You do begin to, to, to be able to receive the gift of our flawed humanity and, and realize that, just like Father Richard says, that, that in fact everything belongs, including the flaws, including the pain. Yeah, that is a good word. How? Okay, so this question you know, is going to come. How do we figure out our type? And I will tell you, and maybe this is you, and I know your book actually says this, do not peg other people, but <laughs> how, how do we figure out our type? I've taken a couple of the online tests and I've retaken them to make sure the results were the, the right results, which I'm probably totally giving away my bent here. But how, how, for our listeners, how are some ways that they can go about figuring out where they fall on the, the nine types? Sure. So I, I, I think if you um, know somebody who's who's done their own inner work with the Enneagram, not sort of a, you know, a, a, a dinner party sniper who, who <laughs> basically who attempts to out everybody's type around the table. If you can find somebody who's really done their inner work, who's really taken this seriously and like really allowed it to, to, to facilitate a, a severe yet merciful deconstruction of their ego, then you could actually allow in, in conversation for, for somebody to maybe through inquiry, do a typing interview. Um, 
I also think if you can find some some reliable resources and books or stuff online and, and read thick descriptions of each of the nine types, one of them will become actually a less cloudy mirror and, and, and begin to show you yourself. And, and often for people, that's the one that seems the most humiliating to the ego. Hmm. Um, for efficiency sake, a lot of people do take tests online and the tests are fine, but there's, there's two things to be aware of. Secondly, first, I'm sorry, the tests, how the test result are really unhelpful. It's like, Man, if you take one of these tests, um, just look at the top number. Don't look at the second, third, or fourth number. Nothing matters past your first result. And if it's wrong, if it doesn't feel right, then then find another test. And 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 sometimes it may be wrong, and sometimes it won't feel right because either we want to test the test, either we want to, mm-hmm. to answer how we would like to be perceived or who we want to be. So if you take the test, be honest. But the second challenge with these tests is that every single one of them, of course, comes with inherent racial, race, racial, cultural um, biases. They they come with type biases. They 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 all have a little bit of um, something that you you have to just sort of hold in tension with the the source of how the test was compiled or or who who wrote the test. Um, you know, if the test is, is, is the way to go, and like I said, it's, it's usually the way that most people determine type. I think the Enneagram Institute's RETI, the R-H-E-T-I test, is, is, is proven to be the most re- reliable. Um, but that's not a free one. I, I think it's either 9 or 12 bucks. But it's worth it. It's, it's worth it because once you find your type, everything changes. It's, it's almost as if it's sort of a conversion moment in, in a lot of people's lives. Yeah. No, and I and I heard, I've heard that too about the tests is and we lock into the results, but okay, see if it resonates and most importantly too is is starting to research the descriptions of the different types and gosh, when I when I first took the test I think it showed that I was a, a six, but then I took it three more times and it's, I'm a one. And then, and then I get this printout of the one and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so the one, but I think I'm still a six. So I'm, st- I'm still in this like, bah! you know, what, not that I have to figure out what I am. Cause you, you, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's not the ultimate, I don't think, but it's, it's learning, you know, from both of them. But I, yeah, I, I attest to the, the test itself is not, the total thing to hang your hat on. You want to research what these, the meaning behind some of these different numbers and the wounds and so forth to, to see what resonates most. Right. So that's, so that's funny because, you know, sixes, um, regardless of what your type is, folks who are dominant type six will, 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 will often take the test six times. Oh, gosh. And at every one of the, the workshops that I facilitate, it, inevitably at least one or two folks who are dominant type six will come up and tell me, you know, I was typed as a six, or I, I tested as a six. But, but what do you think? It's, it's that need for external validation that the six always sort of appeals to as part of that sec, second guessing themselves. Now, six and one, and if you're dominant type one or those who are dominant type one, are actually a, a pretty common mistyping pair huh. because both six and one are um in. Are, 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 are highly compliant to their super egos or, or their inner critics. Like the, the six, the one, and actually the two um, in particular, these three types actually have this um, sense of duty to the oughts and shoulds in their life, hmm. right? 
so my wife's dominant type too. And like, you know, sometimes we'll be out to dinner and I'll be like, Hey, do you want a dessert? And she'll say something like, Oh, I, I had dessert last Thursday. It's like, <laughs> I don't care. Like <laughs> ones, twos and sixes, all these oughts and shoulds in their life yeah. can actually become overly controlling how you tell the difference between ones, twos and sixes. If there's mistyping is, is that compliance to your inner critic? Is that compliance or duty to your super ego? Either, something that you, um, demand something that you, you earn or something that you would draw for. Secondly, is that compliance to your super ego? Because you think that you have to earn, um, your autonomy, which would be type ones, earn your affection or love type twos or earn your security, which is for type sixes. And, and so there's lots of fun ways to sort of like even, when folks mistype, which is very, very, very miscommon hmm. to explain why you may have mistyped with this number. And then actually let's get some clarity and, and, and sort of tighten the lens on this to see if, if there's a way for you to actually have a better or a different look at this than a test or, or whatever, you know? Yeah. So what do you, what do we do? So we, let's say we, we find out we've like kind of landed on our type. Now, how can we utilize the Enneagram for spiritual growth as you talk about in your book? So that's, um, that's why I wrote the book. Um, there's a, there's plenty of great books out there, um, that describe the Enneagram, what, what we learn from the teaching. There's plenty of amazing books out there. Um, that describe the nine types and, uh, and, you know, a lot of the books that, that, that continue to be written essentially are just rehashing, you know, some of this basic, basic information. I, I wanted to write a book that was actually practical that actually said, all right, once I, I learn my type, once I know my type, what do I, I do with it? Right. And specifically, how do I bring my type into my own spiritual formation into my own contemplative practice or how I, nurture and nourish my inner work. And, and so the sacred Enneagram basically says that, that, um, if you know your type, actually here are some keys for how do you pray with your type. And so the first one is this, if, if you're dominant type eight, nine, or one, these are our gut people or the body types. These are instinctive people. And this is your, your center of intelligence, your, your body. Um, for the eights, nines, and ones, I, I suggest that what you do is you bring a posture. This isn't a prayer practice. This isn't a way of praying. It's how do you come to your prayer? And I, and I say that you come to your prayer through stillness, that you stop. Eights, you stop fighting. Nines, you stop meeting. Ones, you stop fixing yourself in the world. You just be still and let God be God. Hmm. If you're a two, three, or four, you're in your heart, right? These are folks who have an incredible emotional intelligence. These are folks who, who know other people's um, sort of emotional state even more fluently and accurately than we know our own. These people deal with a, a lot of, a lot of shame. They experience a lot of guilt. And, and so what I say for, for two, threes and fours is you bring solitude into your prayer life, into your contemplative practice that you withdraw At twos. You stop serving everybody else and, and you look inward and see what you need for once. Threes, you stop sort of leading the rest of us and you press into your own heart to find the emptiness that's in there. That, that really is, is part of the motivation for, for most of your activity. And for fours, mm -hmm. you've seen everyone else but yourself. And so solitude is where you're going to have to go to be seen first by yourself, because until you can, can love yourself, you really won't be able to love us. And, and then fives, six and sevens, their intelligence centers on their head, right? These are thinking people. And 
and, and uh, they're forecasting, right? And so I say, the contemplative posture that you bring into your prayer life is silence. Fives, turn down the noise of asking the questions and getting to the answers. Sixes, turn down the noise of your threat forecasting and contingency planning. And sevens, turn down the noise of, of, of anticipating what's next. And just be present in the silence. Hmm. And in solitude, silence, and stillness, we actually begin to address some of the compulsions of these so-called childhood wounds. And we actually begin to let go of, of, of the things that keep us from really hearing and connecting with, with God. Yeah. And I think some of those things that you describe as false identities or self-perpetuating lies, right? It helps us to <laughs> identify those. How, how do we even develop those things, though, in the first place, these false identities and self-perpetuating lies? I think maybe some from the childhood wound that you talked about earlier, but are there, are there other ways for us to be aware of where these things start to develop? Well, so, so that's where earlier on I said, um, you know, I'm, I'm afraid a lot of us have allowed the fragments of who we perceive ourselves to be to lay claim to the whole of, of who we, we may or may not actually be, of who we think we are, right? So when I, when I say we have to sort of resist the reductionism of the fragments laying claim to the whole, what I mean is you, you may be a, a, a teacher. Well, great. Like, that's what you do, but that's not who you are. However, if you get lost in your vocational fidelity and you let that lead your sense of self, then there's so much on the sort of cutting room floor that needs to sort of be salvaged and, 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 and re restitched so that everything that, that we need you to be and bring forward comes forward. So a lot of us allow the fragment of our vocation to sort of lay claim to the whole. Others of us uh, allow either our great successes and accomplishments in life or our great failures, our great humiliations to lay claim. And, and we lead with that. And that's who we think we are. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of us lead with what we don't have, right? I, I don't have the job I want. I don't have the degree I hope to get. I don't have the partner that I, I always dreamed of. It doesn't matter what it is, but we allow that fragment um, to lay claim to the whole. And, and my sense is, is once we have been fragmented, we're lost. Once we've been fragmented, we, we fall into illusion. And then we, you know, a lot of us feel like the illusions are more comfortable than reality. And so then we build every, we build all of the scaffolding around these illusions as a way of staying, staying stuck in them. And, and so I think what the Enneagram also can show us is you need to wake up out of the illusions. You need to, to sort of stop uh, sort of <laughs> reinforcing the, the scaffolding around these false identities because they're, they're just keeping us from, from, from essence. Right. Right. Is there a practical example, obviously not of somebody, you know, that you can kind of walk us through their scaffolding and, and give listeners an idea of that, where they can even maybe begin to identify theirs. So, I, I mean, I, I, I guess like, you know, again, personally just speaking from personal experience for, for 20 years, um, like I said, I, I led this internationally humanitarian organization and, 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 and really the last three or four years, I, I got lost. I, I began to over identify with my role as an activist. I began to over identify my role as the, you know, the international executive director of the organization. And, and when I lost myself, what happened was my humanitarian work became a proxy battle of, of, of trying to, to, to combat human suffering and poverty in the world rather than facing my own inner poverty. Hmm. 
I didn't know what to do with my own inner poverty. It, it had more control over me. And, and so it began to, to, to hurt myself and, and hurt those that I, I care for and love. And, and you see, I think this is probably true for all of us, right? Well, like I said, I'm dominant in type eight, eight have eights have this drive for justice. We have this, this, this propensity and affinity for always picking the marginalized and, and the underdog. Well, why is that? That's because like I said, in the so-called childhood wound, in part of our childhood, we felt like we had to grow up too quickly. So the rest of our lives, we're trying to re, be reintroduced to our own inner child that now we're trying to protect that we won't let come out. Mm. So if I if I know that about myself and I know that, man, I wanted to, to spend 20 years of my life helping little kids who are really poor, it's like that's because I also wasn't allowing myself to face my own inner childhood experience his own kinds of, of, of spiritual and, and inner poverty. And we could do this for every nine type. There's, there's something in each of us in nine different ways that, that we don't want to face. So we try to face it, try to fight it. We try to fix it outside of ourselves in the world. And that's usually where we allow our identities to, to sort of be co-opted, to be subverted, to, to be taken over. And so I, I, I bet you, if you're honest with yourself, and I bet you, if you look at the ways that you've gotten lost in your own life, it's it's usually in in almost I bet every situation, um, because you're not looking at those very things inside um, that you're you're you're, you're you, we would we would rather we would rather like I said for the nines mediate our external worlds than have to reconcile our inner worlds mm-hmm. for the twos. I, I would rather serve you um, than allow myself to be served and loved. Right. For the fours, I would rather see what's significant in you than be seen as significant by myself. I mean, you can go through the circle mm-hmm. and it becomes really, really obvious, right. painfully, painfully obvious. Yeah, I would say there's a little pain involved as I was discovering my type as well. In the, in the handful of minutes we have left, one of the things that you do in the book for each type is you talk about, and, and we may not have time to spend a lot of time on all these, but you talk about the concept that each type has a holy idea, a virtue, a basic desire, a basic fear, a fixation, a passion, and then a direction of integration and disintegration. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that means? So that's... <laughs> So that's actually, um, there's a lot there. Simply put, you know, when I'm present, and, and, and you know, I, I sort of learned some of this from, from one of my teachers, Russ Hudson, when I'm present, my heart um, is, is, is well, let, let, let's say it this way. When I'm not present, my heart is reactive and my mind is overactive. Right. Mm-hmm. So in presence, that reactivity and overactivity is stilled and is centered. In, in presence, right, I suddenly have emotional objectivity and mental clarity. So if you can think of reactive, overactive, um, emotionally objective and men- mentally clear, actually, that's it. That's the passions and virtues, the fixations and holy ideas. The holy idea of every type is your mental clarity and the fixation is your mental overactivity. Hmm. The virtue of every type is your emotional objectivity 
and the passion of every type is is your uh, emotional reactivity. Interesting. And, uh, and you can sort of understand it like that. Then you look at your type, you start to see all these these fragments of type structure. It begins to make more sense because they're actually all related. Right. They're, they're none of these things are, are really really understood in isolation. Wow. Wow. Well, we could talk about this for a long time because there are so many things that we could impact, but listeners, I really highly recommend picking up Chris's book. It's really awesome. The Sacred Enneagram. And I I love Chris, so many things about it, but to your point, the one that really distinguishes this book is that you give, um, what you call the way home. Okay, it's now what? (laughs) Now that I know my type, now what? And then you direct people towards what you call the unexpected gifts of solitude, silence, and stillness as they discover their type and want to grow spiritually. Any any last uh, final thought for our listeners as it relates to the Enneagram that you want to leave with us? I mean, I would just say, um, as, as you approach the teaching, um, be, be gentle with yourself, find a, find a sense of humor in, in what your, your dominant type is and what it shows you about yourself and, um, and, and really let it be an invitation to, to practicing presence. Well, thanks again, Chris, for hanging out with us. And listeners, thanks again for tuning in. I pray and hope that this conversation has made an impact for you and and made a contribution. And as a result, that something shifts for you so that you can play full out and live fully into who you were created to be. And with that, we will see you next time.